was abandoned. Pilate took Jesus and had him whipped. The soldiers made a crown out of thorny branches and put it on his head. Then they put a purple robe on him and came to him and said, Long live the king of the Jews. And they went up and slapped him. Pilate went back out once more and said to the crowd, Look, I will bring him out here to you to let you see that I cannot find any reason to condemn him. Look, here is the man. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him then and crucify him. I find no reason to condemn him. We have a law that says he ought to die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back into the palace, then asked Jesus, Where do you come from? But Jesus did not answer. He will not speak to me. Remember, I have the authority to set you free, and also to have you crucified. You have authority over me only because it was given to you by God. So the man who handed me over to you is guilty of a worse sin. When Pilate heard this, he tried to find a way to set Jesus free. If you set him free, that means you are not the emperor's friend. Anyone who claims to be a king is a rebel against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he took Jesus outside 
and sat down in the judge's seat in the place called the stone pavement. In Hebrew, the name is Gabatha. before the Passover. Pilate said to the people, Here is your king. Kill him. Do you want me to crucify your king? The only king we have is the emperor. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. Well, good morning, everyone. I purposely didn't watch this drama this week so I could feel it with you this morning. For the first time. It's gripping, so gripping. Um, I'm so glad, uh, I'm so glad you're here this morning. I first wanted to say that and I always look forward to being together on a Sunday morning to uh, gather around the worship time and the time in the Word and then of course at brunch. But I feel like this Easter, this Easter season that my heart is being impacted even more greatly just because we've been following step by step in the life of Jesus and especially in these days preceding the crucifixion and the and the resurrection where we're having a chance to think about uh, the arrest and the trials and Pilate and all of this it just feels like uh, perhaps more than any other Easter before my heart is just being impacted by the depth of of what our Lord Jesus went through so we're in John 19 this morning. If you have your Bible and like to follow uh, along uh, with us or in your smartphone, uh, and there's also an insert uh, in your Sunday news this morning. I think the ushers have more if you would like to have one as well. It has the scripture there as well. It's been a lot of years uh, now since a man by the name of Bill Hybels, uh, pastor of Willow Creek uh, Community Church, wrote about his experience of... Uh, hitting the wall and nearly becoming a statistic in ministry. I don't know if you remember that or have read about it. Uh, he coined a phrase about checking your gauges in life. And he meant uh, your physical gauge and uh, your spiritual gauge and your emotional gauge. And while he seemed to be doing a great job uh, with his spiritual gauge, and uh, also seemed to be doing a good job because he kept himself really well fit, seemed to be doing a good job with his physical gauge, uh, he was overlooking his emotional gauge. And that nearly did him in. 
It's quite a story. Uh, many of you, I know, move very quickly, uh, meaning your lives are full, your calendar is booked, and uh, your emotional system is firing on all cylinders. If you can imagine just sitting in a parking lot in your car and turning the engine of your car off and then turning it back on with just the ignition but not the motor running and turning on the radio and the headlights and the heater and the horn and the rear defogger and the power windows and you know you can probably sap that battery in about 10 minutes. After that massive drain suppose you then take that battery to the service station and say, I'd like this battery charged, please. I'll be back in 10 minutes to pick it up. What would they tell you? No, no. We're going to put this battery on our overnight charger. And it's going to take seven or eight hours to bring it all the way back up because it has to be recharged slowly or else the battery will be damaged. That's kind of what we're like in our emotional part of life when we're drained. It takes time and doing the right things to bring us back so that we're functioning well and we feel strong for the work to which he's called us. Well, this morning we want to talk about Pilate. Wow, and I think about him out in the parking lot. And did his battery ever get drained? He is the critical person in the trial of Jesus. He is the focus of John 19, verses 1 through 16, and probably no other person had the power to bring about a different outcome than Pilate. No one stood in a more strategic position of authority than Pilate. But he hit a wall. He hit a wall. And if he would have checked his gauges, he would have discovered that some of them were bordering on empty. Maybe his gauge would be spiritual or or character or uh, inner resources. Maybe that would be the best term, inner resources. Now, a little bit of background. With the six trials that Jesus went through, six trials, three with the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, and three with the Roman court, six trials in less than eight hours. The Jewish leaders charged him with being guilty of blasphemy. And that was the highest offense you could commit to the Jewish people. Blasphemy means he claimed to be God. But when they got to the Roman court, they changed the charge because blasphemy meant nothing to the Romans. They changed it to treason, which was the highest charge against a a criminal in Rome because that meant perhaps he would lead an insurrection and try to topple the Roman emperor, try to take away Judah from Roman rule. And uh, perhaps you can understand the stress and the pull on Pilate's inner resources when you see his line of accountability. He reported directly to Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor, the Caesar, back in Rome. He didn't report via the Roman Senate. He reported directly to Tiberius. 
He had a direct line of accountability. The governors, all the governors spread out through the Roman Empire, had, a, had, a, had an accountability back to Tiberius. And, and he held a short rope on all of them because he didn't want things getting out of hand in his empire. That was definitely a stress factor because Pilate could not afford to make mistakes without experiencing the wrath of Tiberius. Pilate ruled or governed about 10 years in Judah, which is a little longer than normal, actually. Uh, he, he, no doubt, served in the military, which probably meant that when he got to Judah, he was a man maybe in his mid-40s. Part of his makeup, according to history, is that he was kind of an insulting, demeaning kind of guy. He was sarcastic, especially to the Jews, anti-Semitic, to say the least. Uh, there are numerous examples in the history books of how he severely offended the Jewish people. He was totally insensitive to them, so it is no exaggeration to say that he got off on the wrong foot with the people that he was to govern. He was brutal, unsympathetic, and uh, deeply insensitive. He had competing interests when it came to, uh, to Jesus. The, the Jews needed a crucifixion. What did Pilate need? He needed a future. The Jews needed a crucifixion, but Pilate needed a future. The tension was about to reveal the true reading of his gauges and what was inside of him in terms of his character and being a person who is trustworthy and honorable and loyal. And make no mistake, he had authority. He had great authority. What he said was law. Anything he said was law. So no other person that Jesus faced had more earthly authority than Pilate. He had the power to call the shots on what he would do with Jesus. That, in fact, was the question that haunted him. He said it out loud in Luke chapter 27, verse 22, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? What shall I do with Jesus? Pilate's in a squeeze. Pilate is hitting a wall, and he must deal with the question, what will I do with Jesus? Of course, uh, it's the question all of us have to deal with, isn't it? And to say, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really want to answer the question, what do I do with Jesus? I mean, I just ignore that question, which is really to say, I don't do anything with Jesus, and that really is to answer the question. That is to answer the question. Look how Pilate answers the question in the first verses of chapter 19. Number one, the inner gauge is impacted by empire building and compromise. Pilate had just said in John 18, I find no guilt in this man. The charges are insufficient. He says, I know you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. How about releasing Jesus? And they said, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Matthew calls Barabbas a notorious prisoner. Mark refers to him as an insurrectionist who committed murder. John says he was a robber and a revolutionary. 
I mean, give me a break. You want me to release a notorious murderer? Or do you want me to release a man who says he is the king of the Jews? He's a friend of the Jews. And they say, Barabbas! What does that tell you? The cards are really stacked against Jesus. The Sanhedrin was hell-bent on his death. They didn't want evidence. They wanted blood. So would you look at Pilate? He has no reason to do what he does. John 19.1 He took Jesus and had him scourged. I might be getting just a little bit of feedback here. I'm not sure. He took Jesus and he had him scourged. They scourged him. They made him suffer. Uh, Flogging or scourging entails viciously whipping through a man's skin until he was shredded to the bone in indescribable agony. I mean, you can't imagine. They called in an expert in torture called a lector, L-E-C-T-O-R, who used a whip with long tails called a flagrum. The leather straps could be merely knotted, or if the lector wanted to inflict more damage, he could choose a whip with small metal weights braided into the straps. According to the forensic pathologist, the scourging typically resulted in in, uh, rib fractures and severe lung bruises and lacerations with bleeding into the chest cavity and partial and complete collapse of the lung. It was awful. And it would send the body into shock. And they say, unless the whipping was limited, 39 lashes and no more, the victim would die. That's what Pilate did to Jesus. Why? Well, in our notes, the flogging was an attempt to satisfy the crowds. The flogging was an attempt to satisfy the crowds. Oh, if the crowd wants blood, that's blood. Maybe that will quench their bloodthirsty hearts. So verse 1 says, So Pilate took Jesus and had him whipped. The soldiers, having braided a crown from thorns, set it on his head, threw a purple robe over him, and approached him with, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they greeted him with slaps in the face. Pilate went back out again and said to them, I present him to you. But I want you to know that I find him not, I do not find him guilty of any crime. (laughs) Just look what he did. He punished him, and then he says, I don't find him guilty of any crime. Just then, Jesus came out wearing the thorn crown and purple robe, and Pilate announced, Here he is, the man. Here he is, the man. Have you ever had one of your little ones say, when I grow up, I'm going to be the Prime Minister of Canada. And then I can do whatever I want. What a tempting thought. To be so powerful that you can have your way in anything you want to do. Even Pilate, as powerful as he was, was squeezed in his decision-making. He was more about empire-building. He was more about his future than he was about justice. He was willing to compromise. 
whatever it took to settle the issue so he didn't get in trouble with Rome, with the Caesar for once again bumbling some external affairs situation. Compromise. Instead of saying, this man is not guilty, Pilate tried to appease the Jewish leaders and the mob. See, I beat him up pretty badly. I mean, that ought to do it. Okay, you happy with that? He, he suffered. Satisfied now? Let's just leave it there. Perhaps Pilate was trying to play on the sympathy with, of the Jews. Look how much he suffered already. Let's just stop it now. Like a teacher trying to gain control of an unruly class. Pilate is attempting to gain control over the situation, but by now has gotten quite out of hand. Pilate says, there he is, behold the man. And the Jews are incensed, crucify him, crucify him. They will not stop. They will not relent. What is he going to do with Jesus? Here he is. His position and power were already on thin ice with Rome. He sensed that he did not dare to anger these Jews once again. They have him between a rock and a hard place. His inner gauge is impacted by empire building and compromise. Winston Churchill was once asked, Doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? It's quite flattering, replied Sir Winston. But whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as large. You've got to love that perspective, don't you? You've heard the term home field advantage. Home field, ad home field advantage. I mean, it's true across all sports. The truth is that there is some advantage to playing on your home field, whether it's football or volleyball or soccer or hockey or baseball, whatever it is. And there are studies being done to dispute the fact that the key reason is the cheers of the home audience. That's what I always thought it was. It's just like you've got a lot of momentum. It's your home audience. It's like, oh, dare I mention it, Saskatchewan. Some say, well, maybe it's the rigors of travel for the visiting team, and they come in a little bit tired, and so the home team has advantage. So what drives home field advantage? According to the authors of a particular article, officials' bias is the most significant contribution to home field advantage. In short, the refs don't like to get booed. So when the game gets close, they call fewer fouls or penalties against the home team, or they call more strikes against visiting batters, and larger and louder fans really do influence the calls from the officials. The refs naturally, and perhaps unconsciously, respond to pressure from the crowd. Now, is that really true? It's one group study. It is not gospel. I don't know. And if you're here this morning as a ref, I hope you would dispute this study and say, that's not how I respond. I feel the pressure, but I always make the call that I know to be right. But we would admit that there's pressure. There's pressure as we walk through life to make the right decisions. 
For we're all like umpires and referees walking through life saying, this is the right call here. I won't bow to pressure. There's the pressure of the crowd. There is peer pressure. What will we do in order to get ahead of the next guy? How willing are we to compromise some of our principles because this is the opportunity of a lifetime and we need to seize the day. If we have to bend, well, let's just say we're being flexible. We're being flexible. In an article for Psychology Today magazine, Hera Morano writes about the constant pressure that girls face concerning their image. Deprived of an internal compass, girls, some girls, compete to be the hottest on campus, turning colleges and universities into incubators for eating disorders and numerous unrealistic self-imposed expectations. Why? Morano cites Courtney Martin, author of Perfect Girls, Starving Daughters. Martin believes the chief problem is that young women think they have to be everything, Overachievers in academics, successful in their chosen career, and the life of the party. Adding to the mounting pressure, today's girls are told they can look any way they want. Over time, they compose the self as perfect with a perfect resume and a perfect body. Ah, the role of parents is so critical. Without the affirmation and the love of parents, girls wind up turning to their peers and to the media and to the outside society for uh, for guidance on how to put their lives together. And I think it's equally true for guys, just looks a little different. But there's tremendous peer pressure. Thank God for you parents who are keeping an eye on your kids. And loving them, loving them, supporting them, walking alongside of them, letting them know they're wonderful, letting them know that you're proud of them, letting them know that you affirm them in the direction that they're going and that you think they're the best so that their tanks are filled. The inner gauge is impacted by empire building and compromise. Secondly, The inner resources gauged is impacted by fear. The intensity grows between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. They reject what Pilate has done in scourging Jesus. This is not enough. They shout, crucify him, crucify him. Now listen to the next sentence and you'll see the reason for the escalation in fear. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law he ought to die because he called himself the son of God. Aha, now the real reason for the animosity of the Jews towards Jesus is out in the open. Jesus is not merely claiming to be king of the Jews. He's claiming to be the son of God. He's claiming to be the son of God. Pilate was uneasy before, but now he's truly afraid. It's one thing for him to condemn an innocent man. It's even worse to condemn the Jewish Messiah but to think of crucifying the Son of God that was an entirely different matter 
The stakes at, at this point are very high. Couldn't get any higher. Pilate was right in the middle of this between a very agitated group of Jews and a man whom he now understands was claiming to be more than a king, but that he was the son of God. It's time for another conference behind closed doors, away from the noisy crowds. And and look at how it unfolds, verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? And he didn't mean a certain address in Jerusalem. Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Remember last week he stood up for himself? This week he gave no answer. The thermometer of fear shot straight up in Pilate. What is going on? Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded, talk to me. Don't you realize I have the power to release you or to crucify you? It's probably just about this time when Pilate gets a message from his wife. You pick that up in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. His wife sent him a message. And I just as I say that, I think of text message. But not a text message, but a message with a text. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible dream, a terrible nightmare about him last night. Leave that innocent man alone. Oh, the power of a wife to complicate your life. Pilate's heart must have been doing flips. Oh, that question. Here it is again. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What do I do with Jesus? His wife said, don't touch this one. Don't touch this. Isn't God cool? He put this in the Bible. For all time, Mrs. Pilate was hearing from God and she felt so strongly that she got the message to her husband, don't mess with this man, stay away from this man, don't mess with this innocent guy. You believe God speaks through dreams? Absolutely. He sure is speaking to Muslims these days. And he's coming to them in the form of dreams. Dreams about Jesus. Uh, So pay attention to them. Test them. How do you test them? Run it through the grid of Scripture to see if it's got any scriptural validity. If If it contradicts Scripture, throw it out. You must have had too much ice cream the night before. If it aligns with Scripture, just pay attention to it. Ask the Lord, was this an insight for me? You want me to be aware of something? Should I... Raise the antenna. John 19, verse 10. Don't you realize, Pilate says, that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Now that does prompt a response from Jesus. And and he answers Pilate's question. He answers his question, where are you from? But it doesn't look like he does. Jesus says, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin, the Sanhedrin. Pilate is scared. He is backed in a corner. We say he was the most powerful man 
in that whole situation. But was he? Was he really? He tried to release him. But the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Interpreted? We're going to get you. We're going to call your boss. We're going to tell him how disloyal you are. What a terrible job of ruling that you're doing. And Pilate, you are coming down. I want to talk to your manager. That's the message. The inner resources of our lives are impacted when we allow fear to be a part of our lives. There are a lot of things that bring fear. Insecurity. A lack of confidence. And like Pilate, not making the right decision. Not making the right decision. Selfish ambition, empire building, and compromise. And sometimes the enemy just uses fear as a way of keeping us from being victorious. If you're carrying fear in your life this morning, maybe it's the enemy's trap to say, I'm going to keep you defeated. One of the best places to start is to ask for prayer. Admit your fear and say, I don't want to live like this anymore. Would you join me in prayer that the Spirit of God would, would replace my fear with love and peace and confidence? And he will do that. came across a little story captioned, Dear fear of what others think, you have a fear of what others think about you. Dear fear of what others think, I'm sick of you. And it's time we broke up. I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times, but seriously, fear of what others think, this is it. We're breaking up. I'm tired of overthinking my status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more clever and funny and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people I don't know that well, all in the hope that they'll like me, accept me, praise me. Because of you, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head, and I never stop acting. Dear fear of what others think, we're finished. We're finished. The inner resources gauge is impacted by fear. And then finally, the inner resources gauge is impacted by dismissing your responsibility. Pilate is in the final stages of succumbing to the crowd. The pressure of the world proved too great for Pilate. When forced to choose, he elected to trust in power. He elected to trust in the kingdom of the world. Without another word, he moved to the official place of judgment called the Bema in Greek. In Hebrew, it was referred to as Gabbatha. This was a raised platform from which official decrees were issued, especially verdicts or sentences in criminal cases. So Pilate moved there to pronounce the judgment. Perhaps just before this was when Pilate tried to figure out a self-appointed remedy to deal with the pressure that was bursting the gauges in his inner life. Matthew records it. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. I'm, I'm getting out of here. The responsibility is yours. 
This is the most powerful man in the land, remember. I'm caving in. I wash my hands. Do what you want. I've got nothing to do with this. I am innocent. Just that easy to make it all better and all go away. By the way, we perhaps have figured out some ways to wash our hands of the big question that we face. What shall I do with this man called Jesus? Oh, I just, you know, I just need to pick it up at attending church. Just attend church a little bit more. And maybe that'll just kind of make it all go away. Maybe just give a little bit more. You know, I just, I'll just give a little bit more and that'll make it all go away. I'll make sure I pay all my bills. I'll make sure I just be a really good mom and really good dad, a really good person. And all those things are great. But they don't wash our hands of the responsibility in answering the question, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Our response has everything to do with the heart. It is saying, Lord, I choose you. Lord, I stand with you. I give you my life. I give you my future. I don't have to manipulate it. You love me and you walk with me. So I give you my heart and I give you my will. A final note. A few years later, Pilate was called back to Rome after 10 years to account for his actions because he offended the Jews again. On his way back to Rome, Tiberius the Caesar died. And so when Pilate got back to Rome, Tiberius was dead. He was held to account by the, by the next Caesar. And he was eventually acquitted of his wrongdoings in Judah and was given a new assignment in Gaul, which is France today. It was while he was in Gaul that fairly reliable tradition tells us that he took his own life. Verse 16 of John 19 is filled with a deep heaviness of the soul. It's like, this is the final, final decision. No one ever stood closer to the innocent Christ with more power to change the direction of history than Pilate. But here we are. And it says, then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. What more can be said? Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The gavel falls with a resounding thud throughout history. Would you bow with me, please? Lord, we, we end on a sad note this morning. It appears to us to be sad, but perhaps it's best to say we end on a sovereign note. Nothing has moved beyond the control of a Savior who is now moving quickly to the very purpose for which he has come. He was born to die. 
Jesus, you were not willing to compromise. Pilate was, but you weren't because all of our lives were at stake. And you loved us in such an incredible way that not even the scourging and the humiliation and the terrible crucifixion would deter you. We can only utter quietly, in our hearts, thank you. Thank you for not stopping. Thank you for the price you paid for us. For all of us, my brothers and sisters that are here, our families. And you give us the question, in our century, what shall I do with Jesus? Give us the same courage you had to say, I'll make you first and foremost in my life. I will give you my heart. I will give you my energy. I will give you everything. I will give you my best. Thank you for your grace. And thank you that your name is the only name by which we can come to you. That there is salvation in no one, no one else. And so, Lord, all of this, all that you went through, is so vital. Yours is the name that we cherish. We give you praise in Jesus' name.